Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Good to have you with me this evening. Two fairy tales tonight, both using the old fairy tale traditions, each with a new twist. They go out with thanks and affectionate best wishes to Jack Zipes and his spirited band of devoted and creative students of the fairy tale tradition. The first story is by Mary de Morgan. Born in London in 1850, she was the daughter of the celebrated mathematician Augustus de Morgan. From an early age, she was known for her tactlessness, no doubt part of her developing gift for satire. I'd love to know what it was, she said to George Bernard Shaw, that would explain why, we are told, he hated her exceedingly. She was steeped in the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen and loved to tell her own tales to young friends who included Rudyard Kipling. She later became a member of the Women's Franchise League, a women's suffragist movement. Small wonder that her fairy tales contain such strong female characters who often outwit and sometimes save the male characters. After the publication of her last book, she moved to Cairo for her health and while there she became the director of a reform school for girls. Tonight I'd like to share a story from her collection, The Necklace of Princess Fiorimond. It's called The Three Clever Kings. You'll see how she draws on many themes of older fairy tales, but there is a refreshing satirical undertone. Instead of tying it up at the end with happy ever aftering, she rather leaves it to the reader to consider whether there might not be a better way to run a country. THE THREE CLEVER KINGS by Mary de Morgan Old King Roland lay upon his deathbed, and as he had no son to reign after him, he sent for his three nephews, Aldevrand, Aldebert, and Elderit, and addressed them as follows. My dear nephews, I feel that my days are now drawing to an end, and one of you will have to be king when I am dead but there is no pleasure in being king. My people have been difficult to govern and never content with what I did for them, so that my life has been a hard one, and though I have watched you all closely, still I know not which is most fit to wear the crown. So my wish is that you should each try it in turn. You, Aldevrand, as you are the oldest, shall be king first, and if you reign happily— all well and good. But if you fail, let Aldebert take your place. And if he fail, let him give it up to Alderit, and then you will know which is the best suited to govern. On this, the three young men all thanked their uncle, and each one declared that he would do his best. And soon after, old King Roland died and was buried with great state and ceremony. So now Aldevrand was to be king, and he was crowned, and there were great rejoicings everywhere. "'Tis a fine thing to be king,' cried he in much glee. "'Now I can amuse myself and do just as I please, and there will be no one to stop me, and I will lie in bed as late as I like in the morning, for who dares blame one if one is king?' Next morning the Prime Minister and the Chancellor came to the palace to see the new king, and settle affairs of state. But they were told that His Majesty was in bed, and had given orders that no one should disturb him. "'This is a bad beginning,' sighed the Prime Minister. 
"'Very bad,' echoed the Chancellor. When they came back to the palace later in the day, the king was playing at battledore and shuttlecock with some of his gentlemen, and was very angry at being interrupted in his game. "'A pretty thing,' he cried, "'that I, the king, am to be sent for hither and thither as if I were a lackey. They must go away and come another time.' And on hearing this, the prime minister and chancellor looked graver still. But next morning there came the commander-in-chief and the Lord High Admiral, as well as the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, all wanting to have an audience with the King, and as he was not out of bed, and they could not wait any longer, they all stood outside his bedroom door and knocked to gain admission, and at last he came out in a towering rage, and throwing them his crown, cried, "'Here, let one of my cousins be king, for I will not bear this longer.' it is much more trouble than it is worth, so Aldebert and Alderit may try it and see how they like it, but as for me, I have had enough of it. And he ran downstairs and out of the palace door, leaving the prime minister and the chancellor and the general and the admiral staring at each other in dismay. Aldebrand walked out of the town unnoticed and turned towards the country, whistling cheerily to himself. When he had gone some way in the fields he came to a farmhouse, and in a meadow near the farmer stood talking to his men. Aldovrand went straight up to him, and, touching his hat, asked if he could give him any work. "'Work?' cried the farmer, little thinking he was talking to his late king. "'Why, what sort of work can you do?' "'Well,' said Aldovrand, "'I am not very fond of running about.' "'But if you want anyone to mind your sheep "'or keep the birds from your corn, "'I could do that nicely.' "'I tell you what you can do if you like,' said the farmer. "'I am wanting a goose-boy to take care of my geese. "'See, there they are on the common. "'All you will have to do is to see that they don't stray away "'and to drive them in at night.' "'That will suit me exactly,' cried Aldovrand. "'I will begin at once.' and he went straight on to the common, and when he had collected the geese together, lay down to watch them in high good humor. "'This is capital,' he cried, "'and much better than being king at the palace. Here there is no prime minister or chancellor to come worrying.' And he lay watching the geese all day very contentedly. When the prime minister and the chancellor knew that Aldovrand was really gone, they went in a great hurry to Aldebert, to tell him that it was his turn to be king. But when he heard how his cousin had run away, he looked frightened. "'I'll do my best,' quoth he, "'but I really know very little about the matter. However, you must tell me, and I will do whatever you direct.' At hearing this the Prime Minister and the Chancellor were delighted. "'Now we have got the right sort of king,' they said, and both wagged their heads with joy. So King Aldebert was crowned, and there were great rejoicings all over the country. Early next morning he was up, all ready to receive his ministers, and first came the Prime Minister. "'Your Majesty,' said he, "'I come to you on an affair of much importance. A great part of our city is falling down, and it is very necessary that we should rebuild it at once.' If you will command it, therefore, I will see that it is done. I have no doubt you are right, said the king. 
Pray let them begin building at once.' And the Prime Minister went away, delighted. Scarcely had he gone when in came the Commander-in-Chief. "'Your Majesty,' said he, "'I wish to lay before you the state of our army. Our soldiers have had a great deal of fighting to do lately, and are beginning to be discontented. But the late King, your uncle, would never attend to their wants.' "'Pray do what you like,' said King Aldebert. "'To satisfy them,' said the Commander-in-Chief, "'I think that we should double their pay. This would keep them in good humour, and all will go well.' "'By all means, that will certainly be the best way,' said Aldebert. "'Let it be given to them at once.' And on hearing this the Commander-in-Chief went away right merrily. When he had gone, there came in the Chancellor, with a long face. "'Your Majesty,' he said, "'I have this morning been to the Treasury, and I find that there is scarcely any money left. The late King, your uncle, spent so much in spite of all I could say, that now it is almost all gone. Your Majesty must now save all you can for the next year or two, and you ought also to lower the soldiers' pay and stop all public works.' "'I have no doubt that you are quite right,' cried the king. "'You know best. Let it be done as you wish.' But next morning in came the prime minister with a frowning face. "'How is this, your majesty?' cried he. "'Just as we are beginning our buildings, the chancellor comes and tells us that we are not to have any money to build with.' He had not done speaking when the commander-in-chief burst into the room unable to conceal his rage. "'Yesterday your majesty told me that all the soldiers should have double pay, "'and this morning I hear that instead of that their wages are to be lowered.' "'Here he was interrupted by the chancellor, who came running in, looking much excited. "'Your majesty,' he cried, "'did you not yesterday say we were now to begin saving, "'and that I was not to allow any more money to be spent, "'and that the army must do with less pay?' "'And then all three began to quarrel among themselves.' When he saw how angry they were, King Aldebert took off his crown and said, "'I am sure you are each of you quite right, but I think I am scarcely fit to be a king. Indeed, I think you had better find my cousin Alderete, and let him be crowned, and I will seek my fortune elsewhere.' And he had slipped out of the room and run downstairs and out of the palace before they could stop him. He went briskly down the high road into the country, the same way that Aldebrand had gone. After he had gone some way, he met a traveling tinker who sat by the roadside mending tin cans with his little fire at his side. Aldebert stood watching him, and at last said, "'How cleverly you mend those holes! You must lead a pleasant life, going from house to house in the green lanes, mending wares. Do you think I could learn how to do it if you would teach me?' The tinker, who was an old man, looked at him and said, "'Well, I don't mind giving you a trial if you like to come with me, for I want a strong young man sometimes to help me wheel my little cart, and I'll teach you my trade, and we'll see what you can make of it.' So Aldebert was delighted and went with the tinker. When they knew he was really gone, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor looked at each other in dismay. "'This will never do,' cried they. "'We must go at once,' to Prince Alderete, and let us hope he may do better than his cousins. 
When Prince Alderete heard that it was his turn to reign, he jumped for joy. "'Now,' cried he, "'at last I will show what a king should really be like. My cousins were neither of them any good, but they shall now see how different I will be.' So he was crowned, and again there were great rejoicings all over the country. Next day he sat in state to receive the Chancellor and Prime Minister, and hear what they had to say. "'My friends,' he said to them, "'a good king ought to be like a father to his people, and this is what I mean to be. I mean to arrange everything for them myself, and if they will only obey me and do as I direct, they are sure to be both prosperous and happy.' On hearing this, both Prime Minister and Chancellor looked anxious, and the Chancellor said, I fear, your majesty, that your people will not like to be too much meddled with. At this the king was very angry, and bid them see about their own business and not presume to teach him his. When they had gone, he went to take a drive in his city, that he might see it and know it well. But directly he returned to the palace, he sent for the prime minister, and when he had arrived, said, I already see much to be altered in my kingdom. I do not like the houses in which many of the people dwell, nor indeed the dresses they wear. But what strikes me most of all is that wherever I go I smell a strong smell of pea soup. Now, nothing is so unwholesome as pea soup, and therefore it would not be right in me to allow the people to go on eating it. I command, therefore, that no one shall again make or eat pea soup within my realm on pain of death. Again, the Prime Minister looked very grave and began to say, Your Majesty, your subjects will surely not like to be hindered from eating and drinking what pleases them. But the king cried out in a rage, Go at once and do as I bid you so the Prime Minister had to obey. Early next morning, when the King arose, he heard a great hubbub under his window, and when he went to see what it was, he saw a vast mob of people all shouting, "'The King! The King! Where is the King who would dictate to us what we shall eat and drink?' When he saw them, he was terribly frightened, and at once sent off for the Prime Minister and Chancellor to come to his aid. "'Pray go and tell them to eat what they like,' he cried when they arrived. "'But, do you know, I find it will not at all suit me to be king. You had best try Aldebrand or Aldebert again.' And so saying, he took off his crown and laid it down, and slipped away out of the palace before either prime minister or chancellor could stop him. He went out of the back door, and ran, and ran, and ran, till he had left the town far behind, and came to the country fields and lanes, the same way that his two cousins had. And as he went, he met a sweep trudging along, carrying his long brooms over his shoulder. "'My friend,' cried Alderite, stopping him, "'of all things in the world I should like to be a sweep, and learn how to sweep chimneys.' "'May I go with you, and will you teach me your trade?' The sweep looked surprised, but said, "'Yes, 
Alderete could go with him if he chose, and as he was now going on to the farmhouses on the road to sweep the chimneys, he could begin at once. So Alderete went with the sweep, carrying some of his brooms for him. After a time the people outside the palace grew quiet when they heard that the king would not interfere with them further, and when all was again still, the prime minister and chancellor went to seek the king, but he was nowhere to be found in the palace. "'This will never do,' cried they. "'We must have a king somehow, so we had best have back one of the others.' So they started looking for Aldevrand or Aldebert. They sought them all over the city, and at last they came into the same country road down which the three cousins had gone, and there they saw Aldevrand lying in a meadow watching his flock of geese. "'Good day, my friends,' cried he, when he saw them. "'And how are things going on at the palace? I hope my cousins like reigning better than I did. Now here I lie peacefully all day long and watch my geese, and it is much nicer than being king.' Then the Prime Minister and Chancellor told him all that had happened, and begged that he would come back with them to the palace again. But at this, Aldevran laughed outright. "'Now, here I lie peacefully all day long and watch my geese, and it is much nicer than being king.' "'No, indeed,' he cried. "'I would not be king again for any man living. You had best go and seek my cousin Aldebert and ask him.' I saw him go down the road with a tinker, helping him to mend his tins. So go and ask him, and leave me to mind my geese in peace. So the Prime Minister and the Chancellor had to seek still farther. They trudged on and on, till at last they met Aldebert, who sat by the side of the road mending a tin kettle and whistling cheerily. "'Heyday, whom have we here?' cried he. "'The Prime Minister and the Chancellor.' and I am right glad to see you both. See how clever I have grown. I am learning to be a tinker, and I mended that hole all myself. Then the Prime Minister and Chancellor begged him to leave his pots and come back to the palace and be king. But he fell to work again, harder than ever, and said, No, indeed, go and ask my cousins, who are both much cleverer than I. I really don't do for it at all but I make a very good tinker, and I like that much better. "'Then what can we do?' cried the Prime Minister, "'for we don't know where Alderete has gone.' "'I saw him go by here with a sweep a little time ago,' said Aldebert, "'and he went into that farmhouse yonder, so you had best seek him there.' So the Prime Minister and the Chancellor went on to the farmhouse. At the door stood the farmer's wife, but when they asked her if she had seen the king go by, she stared with surprise. "'Nay,' said she, "'no one has been here but our sweep and his apprentice. He is in there sweeping the chimney now.' On hearing this, the Prime Minister and Chancellor at once ran into the farmhouse and saw the old sweep standing by the kitchen fireplace. "'And where is the other sweep?' cried they. "'He has gone up the chimney,' and is just going to begin sweeping, said the old man, so if you want to speak to him you must shout. So they shouted and called, King Alderete, King Alderete, as loud as ever they could, but he did not hear. 
Then the Chancellor knelt in front of the grate and put his head up the chimney and called, "'King Alderit! King Alderit! It is the Prime Minister and I, the Chancellor, come to fetch Your Majesty back to the palace!' When Alderit heard him up the chimney, he trembled in every limb, but he replied, "'I'm not going to come down. I don't want to be king. I am going to be a sweep, and I like that much better.' I shan't come down till you are gone away, and now you had best go quickly, for I am going to begin sweeping, and all the soot will fall on your head. And then they heard the rattle of the broom in the chimney, and a whole shower of soot fell on the Chancellor's head. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor turned back to the city very disconsolately. We must go and look for a king elsewhere, they said. It is no use troubling about Aldevrand, Aldebert, and Alderite. So they left the one to his geese, and one to his tins, and the other to sweep chimneys. And that was the end of the three clever kings. Our second story is by Elena Sotilotta, a young writer who grew up in Calabria, Italy. Her native language is Italian, but she has always had a passionate interest in foreign languages and cultures, and she has lived and traveled in England, France, Portugal, Ireland, and the United States. She has an extraordinary command of English, which is the language in which she wrote the following story. Again, no standard fairy tale ending, but an affirmation and an ongoing quest. My thanks to the author for her kind permission to share it with you this evening. It is called Miss I Don't Know or The Hopeful Wanderer. A long, long time ago, in a land always bathed in sunlight, there lived a coachman. Every day the coachman brought the local nobles back and forth across the village, he was very intelligent, to the point that he was the only one in his whole family to have learned to read and write, all by himself. Being constantly in contact with such high-ranking people, the coachman had realized how important it was to be able to speak and write well in order to have a better life. One day he married a smart seamstress, who was as clever with her words as she was with her needle. They had three wonderful daughters and decided to teach each of them to read and write. This choice was truly extraordinary at the time. The other villagers considered it pure madness. How could all that knowledge be of any use to the three beautiful girls? Yet the coachman and the seamstress were far-sighted. In fact, as the years went by, their three daughters became more and more intelligent. They devoured books of all kinds, which the coachman and the seamstress managed to get as second-hand gifts from their noble clients, books on science, literature, art, physics, astronomy, sometimes even fairy-tale books. The eldest daughter, with her fluent and refined speech, became in no time the first scientist of the village. She knew everything and advised anyone on the most diverse matters from the highest systems of philosophy to how to weave diplomatic relations with people from faraway lands. 
The second child was also very acute, but at the same time quite eccentric. She learned ten different languages and decided to go and live in a remote land that overlooked the ocean where she could learn the eleventh most complicated language in the world. The youngest daughter, however, despite being also quite witty and cultured, did not know, alas, what to do with her life. Her sisters often teased her because every time she was asked the question, What do you want to do when you grow up? she replied in a rather disconsolate tone, I don't know. She was thus nicknamed Miss I Don't Know, since everyone in her small atypical family considered knowledge a great value. Miss I Don't Know suffered greatly from this label and felt very unhappy. Her village was getting tighter and tighter for her, and so she decided to leave, although she didn't know exactly where to go. The first country she randomly stopped by was as green as emeralds and was inhabited by leprechauns, banshees, and other fairy creatures who welcomed her with great kindness. Although she worked very hard to make a living, and really enjoyed living there, Miss I Don't Know continued to feel dissatisfied. Thus, after one year, she decided to leave for a new destination. The day before her departure, while she was woefully walking along the coast of the Emerald Island, the eldest of the local banshees approached her and said in a whisper, "'Aren't you happy to leave, gracious foreigner? Why are you so sad? Is there anything—' that would make you feel better. I don't know, simply replied the girl, since she really didn't know. The banshee, who was generous and wise, kindly told her, Before you leave, I want to give you a reward for all your hard work. You will not immediately understand what it is, but keep it safe, because one day it will prove useful. She pronounced these words with a hiss, and gave the young maiden three stems of shamrocks, intertwined with each other in a curious shape that distinctly reminded the human eye of the letter H. The girl thanked her very much, and kept the unexpected gift in her pocket. She then set off. She decided to try living for a while in the country near the ocean where her eccentric sister lived. It was a palace full of kind-hearted people who spoke a melodious language. The locals were skilled navigators and built flying ships capable of crossing the world in the blink of an eye. As much as she enjoyed helping the people of the village in any way she could while exploring the skies and seas of that gentle country, she didn't feel that she belonged there as her sister did. She wasn't sure why she felt so sad and out of place, but one day she realized she had no other choice but to leave. One of the captains summoned her before she left and told her, "'Miss, I don't know. Ours is a hospitable and open country, and we are sorry that you have to leave. I would like to give you this little token on behalf of my crew. It will be valuable to you one day.' Miss I Don't Know thanked the captain so much, and took from his hands a circular wooden object that looked like the miniature reproduction of a ship's rudder. It vaguely recalled the shape of the letter O, although she didn't notice it on the spot. So she got ready to leave once again, 
with that mixture of existential sorrow and voracious curiosity that had always accompanied her in her random adventures. This time she was very audacious. She asked one of the local captains for a ride on a flying vessel to reach the other side of the world. She thus found herself in a very cold country, where it used to snow so much that everything, even humans and animals, was covered with a thick layer of shining snow. The freezing land was mostly inhabited by penguins. Miss I-don't-know was not sure why she went all the way to such an unusual country, but since she was there she decided to make the most of it, and she did her best to share her culture and traditions with them. At some point, however, she had to go away again. A penguin who was very fond of her gave her a gorgeous souvenir, even if she did not understand exactly what it was. It looked exactly like a sort of small net made of thin silk supported by a tiny iron stick. Its shape was vaguely reminiscent of the letter P. And so Miss I-don't-know, armed with an H made of shamrocks, an O made of wood, and a P made of silk and iron, left for her following destination. Driven by her usual dissatisfaction, she eventually reached the so-called teacup's land. It was termed in such a way because everyone in that country did nothing but produce gigantic quantities of teacups of all shapes, colors, and sizes. Miss I-don't-know was very intrigued by these habits, which were so different from the ones she had learned in her travels up until that point. She liked the teacup land so much that she decided to stay there longer. Working day and night, she was able to live there in dignity for several years. At some point, however, something completely unexpected happened. A terrible plague spread across the world and struck the sun-kissed village of her origins, the Emerald Island, the country overlooking the ocean, and even the land populated mostly by penguins. Miss I-don't-know had no choice but to return to her village. Thus she found herself exactly at the starting point, and when her elder sisters, her father the coachman and her mother the seamstress, still living in the sun-bathed village, asked her, "'So, what do you want to do with your life now?' She could not help but reply for the umpteenth time, "'I don't know.' But so many years had passed that it was high time for her to make a decision. But truth is, she really didn't know. During one of her melancholy walks by the sea, pondering on the meaning of life and the essence of happiness, she befriended a flock of marvelous seagulls. Every week they met and talked about their travels. The seagulls told her all about the wonders they had seen from the top of the sky and Miss I-don't-know was truly enchanted by their stories. But one day they had to leave. They were headed back to their enchanted kingdom, a place where everyone was always welcome and people were always content. The girl, who was already quite unhappy, felt even sadder. One of the seagulls, however, said to her before leaving, "'I would like to give you a gift in the name of our friendship.' combine your knowledge and use it well. And so she gave her four long tapering stones attached to each other 
as if by magic. Together they seemed to form the letter E. On a cloudy day, when the girl was feeling particularly down in the dumps, she decided to retrace with her mind the memories of the people she had known in the various places where she had lived and of the wonderful experiences they shared together. All of a sudden she remembered the gifts she had received in each country. She placed them next to each other, the H made of shamrocks, the O made of wood, the P made of iron and silk, and the E made of stones. In that moment her face lit up, and she understood the meaning of all the journeys she had made up to that moment, of all the hardships she had faced, of all the wonderful encounters that life had given her. And when she was asked by a villager for the umpteenth time, but in short, what do you want to do in life? She was no longer ashamed to answer, I don't know. She decided she would set off for another journey as soon as she could in order to share more and more adventures with more and more people. At times, uncertainty is a blessing in disguise, and for the first time in her life she felt hopeful. You have been listening to The Three Clever Kings by Mary de Morgan and Miss I Don't Know or The Hopeful Wanderer by Elena Sotilotta. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. If you're enjoying this series, please tell your friends about it. I'd be happy to add them to my subscription list. Let me know what stories and authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best. Thank you.